Welcome to the Besties with Breasties podcast. Sarah Hall here. I am a certified health and wellness coach, athletic trainer, mom, and breast cancer survivor. I help women overcome their own mind drama to make mind shifts that open up the possibility for their most empowered and energetic life. And I am Beth Wilmus, author, speaker, and founder of a human investment organization, otherwise known as a nonprofit called Faith Through Fire. Our mission is to reduce the fear and anxiety that breast cancer patients feel and replace it with hope and a path toward thriving. This podcast is about our experiences with breast cancer and life after as young survivors and moms. Hi. Hi. Walk walk after this little break. Yes, for sure. Break and then walk. For sure we're walking. I need a walk. I feel like I'm, yeah. you know. My brain needs to bounce back. Oh, yep. deep breathe. I know. I've, I've actually been working a lot on my, there's a new technique I was reading about, about the four, seven, eight breath technique uh-huh. for your vagal stimulation. Oh, you and I are reading the same things right now. That's so uh, crazy. Yeah. Was it a long article online? Yeah. yeah. Oh my Where gosh. did you see it? I don't know. Oh, okay. But you and I were talking the other day about this and, I, and you and I were very in sync on the vagal yeah. nerve. So yeah. I was like, what are we reading? We're both yeah. reading similar literature right now. I mean, it's all, I mean, I literally wake up thinking about my vagus nerve. <laughs> Him I and I are friends. Well, that's because, well, you're, I don't feel like you're as activated as I am. My nervous system's constantly like in. Bleh. Yeah. You need to be thinking about your vagus nerve as much as I, I do. Am. <laughs> Me and my vagus nerve need to become besties. <laughs> For sure. You don't right. like that's not, you. Even, that's not even what we're talking about today. No. That's not even. So the title of this episode is Healthcare as a Business. Which yeah. <laughs> I don't think we need to explain that any more than that. Oh, are we done? <laughs> we're done. We're done. There you go. You, you all know. <laughs> I actually have a perfect example, I think. Oh, okay, great. So I got this bill. Do you see this bill over here? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So I got this bill. I'm not going to out the hospital that yeah. owns this urgent care, but hospital <laughs> owns the urgent care. And I've noticed that the prices have gone up since ownership has taken place. Yeah. So short story is, ladies, you all know how it feels to get a bladder infection. What? Men don't listen to this podcast? Uh, Well, do men don't typically get bladder infections as much. (laughs) That's true. I mean, I'm not going to say it never happens. Yeah. Yeah. I have been married a long time and I don't think my husband's ever had a bladder infection. And you actually get them pretty routinely. I did when I was on the hormone suppression drugs. Oh. But now that I'm off of them, I don't really. Oh, interesting. But this was a one off and I did get one. I also think it has to do with after you have sex, if you don't freaking immediately go do that PP. I know, right? So, I mean, how old are you? I know. Well, you know what's so funny is that I went to the surgeon care and it cracked me up because the doctor's like, you know, you need to wipe front to back. I go, this is not my first rodeo, dude. I know how to wipe myself. Like, this is not, I felt like I was being chastised. Like, yeah. Like, no, I'm, I'm wiping back to front, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, shoot, man. You really like are educating me on something I've never heard in my uh, yeah, life. Yeah, right, 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 right. Yeah. Women, Thank women, women know front to back, dude. Yeah. But anyway, so short story is, is that I get a bladder infection. Mm-hmm. You know how miserable that is. Miserable. Right. So for the first 24 to 48, you try to manage it yourself with your mm-hmm. cranberry juice and your supplements. And then yeah. you realize this thing and not going away without right. some help. At that point, my primary care is like, I can't get you in today. Mm-hmm. So you book it to the urgent care, which is what they're really good for. These critical moments where you're like, I'm peeing my pants every five seconds if I don't get in. So I go to this urgent care and they come in and they say that the tech says, you know, could you be pregnant? I say, <laughs> no, I don't have fallopian tubes. Absolutely cannot be pregnant. So and then they do the urine analysis and the nurse comes in for five seconds and says, "Okay, yes, you have a bladder infection. Here's where you can go pick up your prescription. Right. Mm -hmm. So once I got into there, it was like in and out. All Mm -hmm. good. 
So I get a bill. So Mm -hmm. I get the bill from the Mm -hmm. urgent care in the mail. The first thing I notice, and it's itemized to their credit, it's itemized, not always the case. Mm -hmm. They charged me for a urinary pregnancy test. Great. Right. I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. I told you I had no fallopian tubes, no need for a pregnancy test, and yet you charged me for it anyway. Mm -hmm. Second, I get charged, the the bill was for $327 for a 30 to 44 minute visit when I, in fact, saw the nurse practitioner for what felt like five seconds, and if I was Mm -hmm. being generous, might be five minutes. Mm -hmm. So my out-of-pocket for this visit was like $260, okay? So I call, I call up, you know, the billing place, and I'm like, first of all, you charged me for a urinary test, like a pregnancy test, Mm -hmm. like when I told you I was not pregnant. And she's like, oh, okay. And I said, and secondly, you charged me three hundred and twenty seven dollars for a 44 minute visit when it was like five seconds. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I'm not paying this. Like, Mm -hmm. that's ridiculous. And she says to me, well, it doesn't matter if you see her for five seconds or if you see her for the full 44 minutes. This is the contracted rate. So that's what you have to pay. Yeah. Now, does that? No, I mean, this is where insurance sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Hence our insurance episode. (laughs) But I was just like, you've got to be kidding me. She goes, well, I can reach out to the urgent care and dispute the the pregnancy test. But the other is like, you, you're you basically out of luck. And I said, well, I want you to make a point to tell the practice manager that I don't want to get charged 44 minutes for a visit that took five. So, yeah, what's, you know, sad, what's sad is that like insurance dictates that and there's like nothing that they can do about it, especially I mean, n- especially not at the like at the practice level. It's, then, it's, then it's me- just like it's a whole... It's then a whole, tra- t- like, who, who chicken before the egg? Who no, no, do you no. blame? Like, no. who do you go to? No, like- no, no, no. No, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> the next time I go to the urgent care, I'm going to say, I am I would like a 44-minute visit. <laughs> and I'm going to put everybody yes. behind. I'm going to put everybody behind on the schedule. You're just going to talk to them about your I'm day? I'm going to talk to them about my day. I'm going <laughs> to talk to them about my, my, my dog, Buddy. I'm going to talk to them about whatever I feel compelled to talk about so that I get my mental health so that I get my 44 minutes and I will be armed with this bill the next time I go in makes me so mad (laughs) it would be nice to get what you pay for Uh, but then also get what you don't want like to not get what you don't want like don't (laughs) want to be charged for a pregnancy test when it doesn't clearly make medical sense for you to get tested I mean I (sighs) I just think how many people pay this without really talking about it and you know guys this is this is something too like you can always ask for an itemized list from your insurance company to know what the charges are and Mm -hmm. what your port like don't be afraid to call up and dispute the bill Mm -hmm. and don't be afraid to ask for an itemized Right. Bill for like what everything is, because they tend right. to like to lump it together and give you a dollar amount and not tell you what each one was for. And, you know, when all of a sudden. So, for example, I got a different bill for my physical therapy for my arm mm-hmm. and there was a charge on there for two hundred dollars for an ice pack. <gasps> yeah. So I'm disputing that. I'm like, yeah. really? Two hundred dollars for an ice pack. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Yeah. First, we'll talk about how hospitals operate. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to talk about two recent events that many people are aware of and that hurt patients and many survivors we talked to feel was motivated by nothing more than a money grab. Fun. And then finally, we're going to touch on what can be done today to ensure ethical behavior in healthcare. Right. But before we dive in, let's hear from our first sponsor. Thriven is a proud sponsor of Faith Through Fire. Thriven believes money is a tool and not a goal. The Gateway Financial Group with Thrivent is local to the St. Louis area and can work with you to create a financial strategy that reflects your priorities and helps you protect the things that matter to you, like family and giving back. Please call 
1-800-242-4214 to schedule a free consultation with one of Thrivent's Gateway Financial Advisors. Okay, so we're back. A lot of people don't know how hospitals operate, and I didn't know this either until I worked for one. But hospitals have service lines. So those are like their departments. So cardiology, oncology, orthopedics, wound care. These are all different service lines. That's what their verbiage is. And some are more profitable than others. And some lose the hospital money. The Um, loss leaders. (laughs) Right. There you go. So like a service line that loses hospitals a lot of money is behavioral health, which Sarah and I are all about mental health. And guess what gets the shaft Mm -hmm. in care? You know, what's also because I worked at a birth center. So we we were talking about the business of birth a lot. But natural birth loses the hospitals a lot of money versus a cesarean. Yeah. Right. So why would you do things as, you know, nature intended? Yeah. (laughs) Right. So it's all about what makes the hospital's money so that they can stay profitable. Mm -hmm. Often a hospital will hire a service line manager who is responsible for many service lines instead of just one. So they typically will hire somebody and say, oh, you have cardiology and you have, you know, oncology and you have wound care. So they're not just over one department. They're over many. And so actually optimizing patient care you know, it can be hard because they're they're responsible for increasing profitability. Mm-hmm. And you have to kind of wonder, like, where is the patient care piece versus where is the profit? Right. At the manager meetings, do you think they're going like, and how do your like, how do, how do, how do your reviews? Experience? How are your reviews versus like what kind of money? are you Well, making? yeah, it is interesting. I will tell you, hospitals have in the past and it's been a while since I've worked for one. They used to live and die by patient satisfaction scores. Mm -hmm. So they would incorporate it into everything they did. And it was all about getting those scores like really high. Mm -hmm. But I always thought it was interesting because what they asked patients about in terms of their experience didn't always mesh with what I thought would be a good. Oh, like they were like leading questions. Uh, It was just like, you know, did you get in in a timely fashion? Did you feel heard? And I mean, some of them are valid. Yeah. So, I mean, they do ask about patient satisfaction. But the bottom line is, is these service line managers, I have friends that are service line managers and they're constantly putting out fires is really Mm -hmm. what it looks like to me. It's just like going around and constantly putting out fires and trying to keep the the departments profitable is kind of what they're tasked with. So hospitals are always analyzing how can they increase volume or profits. And I think that this can lead to exploiting opportunities that help their bottom line, but potentially could hurt patients. Mm -hmm. But before we talk about like two examples of this, you want to do boobs? You want to do boobs? Let's do boobs. All right. Boobs in the News is a fun segment where we read funny tweets by real people or ridiculous news stories. Boobs in the News. Boobs in the News. Boobs in the News. So this is not a news story. Oh, it's not a news story? Not a news story. Okay. Funny tweets. Oh, okay. Yeah. By real people or ridiculous news stories? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I love when people come up to us and then they recite that to us. I know, I know. They're like, boobs in the news, boobs in the news, boobs in the news. (laughs) It's funny. Okay. These are funny tweets about married life, which we have done before. So these were ones that we did not do before. Okay. Okay. So some couples exercise together. This is from Dan Regan. My wife and I text each other videos while sitting in the same room. (laughs) That's funny. Do you do that? Not videos, but I'll text my husband. Oh, like I'll text him a question. I I tend to text reels. 
Mm. Like, especially recently, he started playing a lot more golf. Mm -hmm. And, like, all of a sudden on my reels, more golf started showing up. Like, how to perfect your swing or, like, funny songs that took, I don't know. And I was like, what the heck is happening? You're seeping into my phone algorithm. So Gary and I are pretty anti-social media. So I can't send him reels. Like, I have one for the Faith Through Fire account. You know, like, you have to have one for the business. But my personal one's basically like defunct Mm -hmm. but i can't send him anything because he doesn't have a facebook account anymore so yeah like so we can't do that to each other unless i get on yeah yeah Yeah. so i don't know we don't have that but i i feel you yes okay i don't feel like this one like connects with me but i'm sure this connects with lots of people husband and kids are out of town so i'm back to my natural state depressed cheetos for dinner and wondering why is life so when sad. They're, when they're out of town, that's when I'm like loving it. I know. I know. <laughs> like when everybody's out of town and I have a quiet house, that's when like, I'm like, hello. Yeah. <laughs> I can do my mindfulness. I can, right. you know, read my Bible. I, I did can... see, obviously, I'm the person who likes to watch a lot of reels, but I did see this one that, oh no, it was on Saturday Night Live. And I can't remember Kate McKinnon, maybe. And it was like, when the kids and the husband are out of town, you sit down and you put your feet up and you watch true crime stories. <laughs> oh, that's so true. <laughs> like you're going to relax and watch true crime stories. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I find it. Re- but I'm a loner. I mean, I my quiet time recenters me. So. Oh, yeah. OK. So here's another one. Husband. Have you seen my jeans? Five year old. Have you tried the big closet where all the clothes are? <laughs> me sheds a single tear of pride. <laughs> yes. I've I've actually read that one before. That's, That's like when mo- when mama training's paying off. Right, for sure. That's funny. A su- this is from Crack Kid oh. with like a cool like little lightning bolts in the middle. A sucker punch, but it's just my wife calling the dog who's on my lap. Do you get that one? It took me a minute. So the dog is sitting on his lap and then she yells and then, and then she then yells, he, like and then he like jumps up yeah <laughs> uh, that's why i don't have lap dogs yeah for sure buddy is not a lap dog <laughs> uh, that's yeah. too funny there's your bibs bibs in the news bibs in the news bibs in the news all right we're back so when we ask survivors about real life examples that they felt have led to medical skepticism they gave us two really interesting examples the first is the opioid epidemic. Duh, this is like a big one in the news right now. Well, so well, have, you, news, have you been watching? Netflix. Yeah, I was just yeah. going to say the Netflix painkiller show. Mm-hmm. Have you have you watched that? Yeah. Yeah, me I too. binged it in a day. <laughs> I think it took me a few, but I, yeah. I also binged it. How, yeah. like, what did you, well, first of all, for those that are listening who maybe don't know what it's about, how would we briefly, basically, there's Pr- this. Purdue Pharma. Right. There's this family. There's this wealthy family. They're the Sackler family. They own Purdue Pharma. They are essentially responsible for bringing oxycodone to the market, right? And if you've watched Painkiller or Dope Sick, you know that basically they rose this drug to infamy from like ingenious marketing mm-hmm. and lies. I was going to say, and, and and really just deceptive practices, right? Yeah. So they they knew how addictive Oxy was, but they pushed it anyway. And doctors were incentivized to prescribe higher milligrams mm-hmm. for higher reimbursement rates. So I thought that was really interesting. It wasn't Crazy. just about getting doctors to prescribe. It was about getting them to prescribe in higher and higher doses mm-hmm. because that's how they got more money. Yep. That, that's how the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma got more money. So they had all these pharma reps going out there and really pushing the milligram dose and trying to claim that it helped people. And I thought Painkiller was 
really sad because it showed how a normal family can quickly spiral into the throes of drug addiction and what it does to the family. And it was just... It's a massive generational ripple effect that happens on so many levels. And they were destroying communities. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what did you think was most shocking about that whole story? Did you... Was there anything that came out of it? I mean, I'm sure some of it was creative license, but it basically the bones of it were true. So... Yeah. I mean, because I also watched Dope Sick, which I thought found really interesting. And that, that, I think, centered mostly on like this, more on the East Coast, maybe like a Virginia area. There was a coal mine, I think, if I remember right. And there was a doctor there and he was like really apprehensive to prescribe it in the beginning. And then he ended up doing it. And then he himself got into a car accident. And became addicted to it. And just to watch that too, and then have it alongside painkiller, I think what I found most shocking was just like how, one, how it completely changes the way that your brain thinks. Like you stopped thinking about like, I need to eat, I need to sleep, I need to work, I need to be there for my family. And that's all you think about. Mm -hmm. And the effect that that has on everyone in your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, they, I don't know, it's, it was incredibly selfish and how anybody could be that selfish. But at the end of painkiller, the ending was insane. Matthew Broderick, who played who played the Sackler family, which I forget what the guy's name, but the the head guy. I think it might be Richard, but I'm not Rich, sure. Yeah. yeah. He was having like this conversation with his uncle who wasn't even there. Like mm-hmm. and, Yeah, he kind of was losing it. And he was losing it. And you could tell just at the end, like he came to it, but he had like zero remorse. He just kept pushing forward. Every time they would hit a wall, he would keep pushing forward. Because his focus was on the money. I think that that for me was just what was so infuriating was that to your point they ruined entire communities of people for money yeah and just the amount of greed mm-hmm. that people have where they will prioritize money over the well-being of people is just to me it's just such a sad statement of where we are as a society and it's just so demoralizing because it's like who are these people and but they like, bought all the people around them like they bought they bought the salespeople. They just gave them tons they, of money and they they put their almost like their moral values aside because even when they would start to see like, oh, what I'm doing is potentially not good, they would just end up giving them more money. More and money, then they'd more be like, prestige. Oh, yeah, okay. Or the part that I found most shocking, because this part's true, is that they bought off the FDA guy. Yeah. So like the FDA yeah. guy at first was like, no, there's mm-hmm. lots of problems with this. We're not going to approve it. We're not going to approve it. And he held his own for a really long time until they took him away on a weekend away. Uh-huh. They partied it up and all of a sudden he approved it. Yeah. Shortly thereafter, the FDA guy quits the FDA and goes to work for the Sackler family. Yeah. And it's like, to me, it was shocking that there was so little oversight. And they make the point to say that everybody thinks the FDA is this huge agency and there's mm-hmm. all this oversight and all these checks and balances. It came down to one, one guy. guy. One guy said yes when he knew he should have said no. Mm-hmm. And the entire country crumbled. Yeah. And there's been no accountability for any of that since. And it's like, it is unbelievable to me that one person can have wreak that much havoc and there was so little oversight you know where was that man's boss i think this is also where my medical skepticism comes up with anything that's approved by the fda right yeah oh no i know i mean you know when i so so full disclosure right in my early 20s i worked for a pharmaceutical company and i did not experience like what they portrayed in that show about pharma reps like you know by that time, they had cracked down on all of that. Mm-hmm. I do think there was a time where all of that, you know, weird promotion and trips and all that stuff was like 
the norm. Mm-hmm. When I went, it was kind of the heyday was over. And Dang. I, and I just found it to be a huge grind. I mean, yeah. just, it was such a huge grind. I mean, yeah. it was just not a great job. I did not enjoy it. So, you know, you're you're kind of pushing these drugs, but a lot of times they would have like a black box warning, mm-hmm. you know, which they're required to put on there, mm-hmm. like to basically disclose how toxic they are or mm-hmm. how many adverse effects that could be. And it's like, no big deal. You yeah. know what I mean, like black box drug, like no big yeah. deal. And it's like, mm, this is a big deal. Yeah. You know, like, for example, this is kind of a weird thing. But my my husband was on Accutane mm-hmm. as a teenager, which a lot of people went on for cystic acne. And he and his sister have perfect skin now Mm -hmm. but he also has blood pressure high blood pressure and has since he was in high school like basically Mm -hmm. which it's like who and he's you know he was thin and healthy and it's like who gets high blood pressure you Mm -hmm. know in the early 20s i think yeah well i suspect it's from him being on accutane Mm -hmm. and there was a black box warning but Mm -hmm. you know we trust we trust right yeah okay this isn't going to harm me long term yeah can i prove that that's the case no no but i think that's I think that's probably a result of that. So I think you're well within your rights to have some medical skepticism. For sure. Yeah. (laughs) So that leads us to our second event, which I, this happened right here in St. Louis. So there is a children's hospital in St. Louis that opened a transgender clinic in 2017. And if you know service lines for hospitals, surgery is a pretty profitable Mm -hmm. service line for hospitals. I did a little research when this came up because it was super interesting to me. But transgender surgeries is expected to reach $5 billion by the end of the decade. So it's very, very profitable. Okay. And and really, this provides an enormous opportunity for hospitals to profit, Mm -hmm. you know, from these surgeries. Right. The short story is in 2022... A woman named Jamie Reed, who worked as a case manager at this pediatric transgender clinic, blew the whistle on the clinic, saying she believed what was happening there was harming kids. I think this story is so interesting on so Mm -hmm. many fronts. First of all, the thing that struck me first is that Jamie described herself as a queer woman married to a trans man. Mm -hmm. So clearly she wasn't coming from a place of like bias against this yeah like i don't think there was a political motive here like okay Mm -hmm. i'm just you know i'm opposed to this yeah fundamentally and in fact i i looked up her article because she basically penned an article for the free process where i found it and the title that says i thought i was saving trans kids now i'm blowing the whistle it says what she basically said there are more than 100 pediatric gender clinics across the country i worked at one what's happening to children is morally and medically appalling so she pins this article and basically goes into she she got into this care because she was empathetic to mm-hmm. the plight of tra- trans kids. Like she she talks about how she had a lot of gender confusion growing up. And so she gravitated toward this work for the obvious reason. Mm-hmm. Like she empathized. Mm-hmm. But when she got in there to this clinic, she over time felt as though they were harming kids. She felt there was an abnormal amount of kids, specifically groups of girls. Mm hmm coming in and claiming gender dysphoria when all signs pointed otherwise. And yet they Mm -hmm. were going down the road of prescribing different hormones and things Mm -hmm. like that, even though they didn't exhibit signs of true transgender. Right. And for somebody who had lived experience with that, she would be able to see it. She says that she could no longer participate in what was happening there. By the time she departed, she was certain that the way the American medical system is treating these patients is the opposite of the promise to do no harm. 
Instead, we are permanently harming vulnerable patients in our care. Mm. So I was interested to kind of see what her thoughts were and like where, where what she was seeing. And I thought this was really interesting. She said one of her jobs was to do intake for new patients and families. She saw like groups of girls coming in, mm-hmm. like some of like they were all in the same friend groups. Mm hmm suddenly claiming to be in the wrong body Mm -hmm. and these girls she said had many comorbidities depression anxiety adhd eating disorders obesity many were diagnosed with autism or had autism like symptoms they would frequently say they had disorders that nobody thought that they had Mm -hmm. and the doctors privately recognize these false self-diagnoses as like a manifestation of social contagion and yet they ignored all that And And her claim is pushed. Yeah, her claim is that they pushed forward. And what I thought was really interesting was that she claimed that really the only thing that they needed was a psychiatrist to basically say, oh, yeah, they need gender affirming care and to Mm -hmm. write it off. But they had their own group of therapists within the system that they could count on to say that. Pass them through. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think that it's really interesting because. In my mind, and this is just my opinion based off of reading her article, mm-hmm. it sounds like it was money motivated. Yeah. yeah. You know, that there are populations of of kids coming through that have other mental illnesses or other comorbidities, and they were pushing this, this on them because of money. And you can imagine, like, opening up this new clinic, you know, and maybe it had the right ideas in the in the beginning but now they've got this service line manager or somebody over top of them who is like your clinic's not making enough money and then they start getting creative about how to keep their clinic open how to save their jobs how to do you know like i do think it's it, top down. Just, i think it's, it's so down. there's so many aspects to this that it's like yeah you know it, i i get proud of and like also feel very you know like her speaking out was very brave of her to do I mean, I think it was she 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 says that people said do not come out about this and they were, you know, calling her a transphobe. And I thought that was really interesting to call mm-hmm. her a transphobe when mm-hmm. she's gay and her mm-hmm. partner's trans. But well, I think that's probably what gave her a little bit of rocket fuel behind her because she's like, absolutely not. I'm like anything but I, this is my lived life. Like, I, I think it says something. It's so funny because before you got here, I was talking to Ken, who does mm-hmm. all of our sound and stuff. And this isn't related to this specific topic. We were talking about something else. But I said, I think we've really kind of lost our minds as a society because people don't feel like they can change their mind anymore. No. Right. Yeah. This woman, to me, I thought she was interesting and brave if what she says is true. And we should say that the attorney general is looking into this mm-hmm. and they are investigating this hospital for their practices. But to my knowledge, I don't think that they've come up with the final report. So this at this point is just her, she said they said. Mm-hmm. So it is important to note this. But what I was talking to Ken about is like, I think it's so interesting in society today that people can't set change their mind about anything Mm -hmm. this woman jamie she changed her mind about something after she her lived experience Mm -hmm. showed her that it was not helping these kids it was harming Mm -hmm. these kids in her opinion she outlines i mean i don't even know if i can say this because it's like so sad but she outlines a couple of different circumstances as examples but I'll, I'll tell you this example here because she basically said that one patient, one boy, he was 15 years old, was put on a drug called bicalutamide, bicalmulutamide, that's hard to say, 
And the the caseworker was saying, I'm concerned that basically this patient doesn't know what this drug does. And bicaltutamide is a medication used to treat metastatic prostate cancer. And one of its side effects is that it feminizes the bodies of men who take it, including the appearance of breasts. So they the, the center prescribed this drug as a puberty blocker and feminizing agent for this kid. Mm-hmm. But with all cancer drugs, it has a lot of side effects. And this patient ended up getting one of them, which is liver toxicity. So he got liver toxicity. They immediately took him off the drug. And then she says, she claims that afterward, his mother sent a message to the center saying that they were lucky that her family was not the type to sue. And she goes on to talk about (laughs) how these kids, it became very clear that these kids and these parents don't Don't understand understand what this could potentially do to them both immediately Mm -hmm. and in the long term. And I think I think that's why this may be. Well, it's fueling medical skepticism for a lot of people, but I think in particular for cancer patients, I have a theory about why this alarms people. It's because any of us who have lost body parts, any of us who have had to go on hormone suppression drugs or for men that have prostate cancer that have to go on feminizing drug, it it changes your personality. Mm-hmm. It changes your you mental... You stop becoming the person that you were before. Yeah. yeah. Your mental state is affected. Mm-hmm. A lot of times it causes depression and anxiety. It creates sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. It creates self-esteem issues. And and now you are foisting all of that onto children who don't necessarily... A lot more years. Well, but they don't... Their, their little, what is it called? Prefrontal cortex isn't mm-hmm. developed. They don't, they don't understand. And that's what Jamie says. She's like, they don't understand what the side effects are going to be. And then furthermore, like I tried to find longitudinal studies Mm -hmm. and I couldn't find any on the long term effects that this has physically and and mentally. So she goes on. I'll give one more disturbing example of what she claims. She said other girls were disturbed by the effects of testosterone on their clitoris, which enlarges and grows into what looks like a microphallus or a tiny penis. I counseled one patient whose enlarged clitoris now extended below her vulva and it chafed and rubbed painfully in her jeans. I advised her to get a kind of compression undergarment worn by biological men who dress to pass as female. At the end of the call, I thought to myself, wow, we hurt this kid. There's a lot of stories that she gives in this where... Well, and it sounds like they're just not even really talking through, like... I mean, we say this all the time, like, even when somebody comes in and is they're they're saying, oh, you might need to get a hysterectomy. It's like, tell them all the things that they need to expect. And it sounds like that's not being done. No, I don't think they know. Yeah. I mean, some some of them do. She's claiming, like, listen, we all firsthand saw how this was harming kids. She mm-hmm. she quotes some poor girl who had her breasts removed at, you know, 15 or 16, and then she called asking for them back. I mean, that's how unaware mm-hmm. or probably that she had other mental illnesses where mm-hmm. she didn't fully understand that that's, that's you know, mm-hmm. long gone. But yeah, I mean, it's just, it to me, and, and when I read this, I mean, like I said, the jury's still out. They're going to do their investigation and they're going to come back and make, you know, make their assessment money. Yeah. Money, money is what I heard throughout this entire story. I heard yeah. money. Yeah. And to your point, I think it's a top-down situation. The Sacklers mm-hmm. was top-down, right? Like, mm-hmm. everything came from the top. Same thing here. Everything's coming from the top. I do think you have people within these clinics who are trying to do good work mm-hmm. and are trying to help these kids. But it became fairly evident to me that the, the data is pretty scant. 
Yeah. And there could be some really severe life repercussions. And I, I get why breast cancer patients would be upset about this because all of us wish we had our estrogen back. All of us yeah. wish we had our breasts back. Yeah. All of us wish that we had our sex life back, you know, for those of us that are impacted in that way. And it's like kind of heartbreaking. It is. You know, yeah. we have women that are in their 20s and 30s that are trying to come to grips with having lost all that. Mm-hmm. I honestly can't imagine, you know, a 15 or 16 year old and you know so yeah anyway you can read jamie reads account yourself by googling the free press and her name but that was a really interesting example that happened right in our backyard Mm -hmm. so before we kind of close out and talk about cancer as a business let's hear from our second sponsor it's important to have a primary care doctor that you can count on at bjc healthcare world-class and compassionate primary care providers are ready to see you at offices close to home and you can count on BJC to make it easy with convenient online scheduling, virtual visits, and direct messaging. To find a BJC primary care provider near you and to schedule an appointment online, visit bjc.org forward slash primary care. Okay, we are back. So what patients who are medically skeptical do when it comes to trusting their hospitals or doctors' motives? I mean, it probably ranges. You ask questions for, I mean, for me, it's educating myself and that way I can go in and not not just take them at their word so I can ask educated questions. What do you do? I mean, I'm still kind of like reeling from the conversation because I just, <laughs> I mean, it's so easy to, I, what do I do? Is that what the question is? What do I do to... What can patients who are medically skeptical do? So that they can trust their hospitals and doctors? Yeah. I mean, for me, I think it's just, it's a gut instinct. It is. And honestly, the last couple of people, well, we're actually going to be interviewing a couple of people who had some really powerful stories about trusting their instincts mm-hmm. and seeing what happens when that happens. But when you when you just get that like intuition feeling, I feel like it needs to be followed or at least something you need to like honor your body and honor <laughs> and the message that it's giving you. I mean... It's the elephant in the room. Yeah. Like if the medical system wants to pretend that medical skepticism doesn't exist, mm-hmm. they can. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, we've talked about it. They, they, but they, they're building it themselves. Like I mean, they've built they, the model they, for medical skepticism. Feeding, like if they ever thought that that wasn't going to get out there. No, like, that's what I'm saying. They're feeding the monster. So yeah. it's like they want to sit there and we've talked about this. Like, oh, they just don't know. They're just uneducated. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, it's lived experience. I have eyeballs, right? Like mm-hmm. we've seen what the opioid crisis has done. You know, and people will do some crazy things for money and people will do and and they, it's a slow burn. They they start <laughs> they start, you know, compromising their moral values one by one. It's a little mm-hmm. chip here, a little chip there. And and all of a sudden they didn't intend to. Right. Mm-hmm. But now they're now they're harming people. Mm-hmm. And for what? Yeah. For what? For money, for right. profit for profitability, for prestige. Right. Yeah. Oh, we're on the cutting edge and we're leading the country in this. And it's mm-hmm. like. At the end of the day, if you're hurting people, you're hurting people. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, listen to your gut. Go in, ask questions. Don't be afraid to get a second opinion. Mm. And at the end of the day, you know, (laughs) I don't know if this is a good parallel or not. We're talking about cancer as business, but everything's a business. No, we're talking about healthcare as business. Well, healthcare is a business, right? But everything's a business. Like we have the same. I'm I'm a churched person, right? Like mm-hmm. my faith's important to me. People get so upset because church is also a business, it is. and that means that things happen in churches that are not on the up and up, mm-hmm. you know. And and bad things happen, and bad people do bad things, and it's like no industry is protected mm-hmm. from that kind of mm-hmm. you know moral decay. 
So it's not just to vilify the healthcare system. It's to say every industry is human, is human <laughs> and could be susceptible to being, you know, swayed by greed. And so mm-hmm. I don't I think it's OK to go in and just be on the lookout for those red flags and listen to your gut and, mm-hmm. and advocate for yourself early. Yeah, for sure. I agree. All right. Until next time, guys. See ya. Thank you for being a listener of the Besties with Breasties podcast. If this podcast had a positive impact on your journey, leave us a review or consider becoming a supporter. You can donate with the link in the show notes or at faiththroughfire.org. This episode was hosted by Sarah Hall and Beth Wilmus, audio and production edits by Innovative Frequencies. Thank you.